Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the way in which it is revealing to us, Lord, how you have been at work in history preparing for your king. And as we have come to 2 Samuel, we are excited to see what you're going to do with David and how your plan in raising him up as the king of Israel, Lord, is beginning to take shape. And I ask, Lord, this morning that as we study this text of Scripture, that we would allow your Holy Spirit to have freedom in us, Lord, to shape us and to mold us and to see what it is that you're teaching us by virtue of what we see in this text so that we can grow and change to become more like your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I ask that as your messenger this morning, I would simply be your mouthpiece, that you would allow uh, my words to reflect your truth and that you would have your way with your people, Lord, including myself, uh, for the glory of your name. We ask this now in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. There are always multiple questions that people have when there is some kind of significant change that's going to take place in leadership. Um, We're seeing this presently in our country. Every four years, people are talking about leadership. I think Jeb Bush has an ad that basically says or shows you, you know, this is the morning after Hillary Clinton has become president and all these things are happening. And so people are wondering, what's it going to be like if Hillary's president or Donald Trump is president or Ted Cruz is president or whoever you might want to put there is going to be president? How is the world going to change? How is America going to be different? How's my life going to be? Um, Changes in leadership do cause us to ask lots of questions. On a, on a business level, um, we might be concerned about what's going to happen when a company is uh, choosing a new CEO. Um, will there be reshuffling of departments and procedures? Will the, the company move to a different town, state, or even a country? Will I keep or lose my job? These are legitimate questions that happen In the business sector, we could ask, for example, will Apple maintain the same standards now that Steve Jobs is gone? People are concerned about that. Uh, He put kind of a stamp of approval on quality control and that kind of stuff. What's going to happen? What about Microsoft? Will it fall apart when Bill Gates is gone? What about Facebook? Will it become like MySpace when Mark Zuckerberg Departs. Of course, he's got much more time ahead of him. But these are legitimate questions because change in leadership leaves us to ask a lot of questions. What's it going to be like? Now, certainly if you're a shareholder of one of those, com- those companies, you are really concerned because you want your stocks to either maintain or go up. You don't want them to go down. So change in leadership, friends, is a risky time for any organization. Now, as we come to our text today, there is a change taking place. There's not only a change taking place in leadership, but there's a change of eras, you might want to say. There's a change of administrations. There's a change about who ultimately is going to be the king in the land, ultimately the king in Israel. Notice in the beginning of our text, it starts with two words. After this, 
Well, what's the after this that's being talked about? The narrator is linking what's happening in our text to what's just happened. And so what's just happened is that the king of Israel, Saul, and his son have both died in this battle, this defeat at the hands of the Philistines. And the beginning of the, the book of 2 Samuel gives us this, this message that Saul and his son and the, 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 these valiant soldiers of Israel are dead at the hands of the Philistines. And then David, of course, is lamenting. He's weeping for the death of Saul and for the death of, of Jonathan, his dear friend. And so we, we find, though, as we look at our text, that there is this significant repetition of words or themes um, in our text. Look, if you would, at verse 4. It says, The men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over Judah. Then jump down to verse 7. It says, at the end of verse 7, Saul is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me, that's David, king over Judah. And then in verse 11, it says, David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah. Each of those statements are at the end of each section in this text. They set off some portions of this text. So really, this text falls into three sections and, and asks the question, what happens when God's chosen king finally comes? It reveals for us what happens when, um, when God's chosen one is set up to rule. How will people respond? And we're going to find here that the kingdom, first of all, is initiated, then the kingdom is extended, and the kingdom then is disputed. Some are certainly going to celebrate the inauguration of a king. Some are going to be invited to become part of this kingdom, who are outside of this kingdom. And some are going to stand in opposition to what God is doing as he raises up his chosen and anointed king. Let's first of all then look at how the kingdom is initiated, how this king is inaugurated. And we might expect that David, who is anticipating Saul's death, who in one sense was waiting for Saul's death, would have a personal plan of action already in place. I mean, you would think that with his wisdom, his skill, and his cunning, that this plan, this, this, this uh, mode of operation would be kind of ready to go as soon as, as soon as he finds out what's happening with Saul. But what we find in this passage is not David simply, you might want to say, taking modern initiative like today's leaders are supposed to do. When there's a change, you've got to be ready for that change. You've got to be ready to act. You've got to be ready to move. You've got to know what you're going to do. But that's not what we see here. What we see here is David going to God. Look at verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord. He may have had some thoughts. He may have had some ideas, but... What we learn here is after waiting all this time, what's the first thing that he does? Is he goes 
and he inquires of the Lord, and here's what he says, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. And David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So we're not told how David inquired of the Lord. That's not the point that the narrator is trying to get to. It could have been through Abiathar, who had the, the, the ephod. He was the priest. It could have been through a prophet. We don't know. But what we do know is that David, with the means available to him, did inquire of the Lord. Again, here are the, the two questions. The first one's a little bit more of a general question. Which of the cities of Judah should I go up to? Or should I go up to any of the cities? Yes, go up. And then the next one is, to which shall I go? So David is looking for a specific answer, a specific um, direction from God. And God says, go to Hebron. And how does David respond to God's revealed will? What's the answer? He is fully obedient. I just want to remind you of Saul, right? I want to remind you of Saul, and God spoke to Saul, and God revealed himself to Saul, and Saul was not fully obedient. Notice what it says here, verse 2. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. Now, they're coming from Ziklag. They're coming from a territory in the southern part of, I might say, the greater Israel. It was a place that was occupied by the Philistines. It was a city that was given to David by one of the Philistine kings. But now David is, is realizing he needs to move into the, I might say, greater Israelite territory. Now, I have a question for you. How careful are you to pray over your decisions? In a world that says you need to be assertive, to be a strong leader, you need to know what you're going to do. You've got to have a plan of action already in place. Maybe in the world's eyes, you're gifted. Maybe in God's eyes, you're neglectful. How eager are you and how careful are you to pray over your decisions? Do you want to listen to God and his counsel about important questions that you have in life? Or are you content to ride on the fumes of past encounters with God? David here at least gives us an example of, all right, this huge change is happening here, and I have to go to God. I'm going to turn to him. When we inquire of the Lord, we don't have a prophet that we're going through. We don't have a, a priest, so to speak, who's working with the ephod. What we have are some tools that God has given us. Let me just mention a few. We have prayer, which is when we are interacting with God. We're talking to God. We pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us to discern God's will. And then we pick up the Word of God. That would be the second thing, God's Word. We open our Bibles and we read God's Word. First of all, I would suggest that this is already going on in your life. It's amazing to me, as I'm reading the Bible through the year, how God's Word has already spoken to things that I'm facing. And so I'm taking what God is already showing me in His Word that I wasn't really understanding as to maybe why I was learning this thing until something happens. It's like, aha, okay, I know where I need to go. So there's this systematic reading of God's Word. But then, usually when you're in a particular situation and you're looking for some direction and answers from God, you go to the Word specifically where the Word of God speaks to that question that you may have. 
So you're going to the Word of God. You're, you're taking time to pray and ask for, for wisdom and discernment so that you can actually understand what God is saying through His Word. There's a third one, and that's meditation. I think it's really important that God's people meditate on the Word of God and meditate by means of ongoing prayer. You're thinking, you're pondering, you're considering, you're beginning to, to, to squeeze out what God is saying to you as you have spent time in his word. Another aspect that I think is really important, especially with more, I want to say, critical or significant changes, is seeking counsel from others, others who are uh, mature, others that you know are biblical in their, their mindset and are going to give you wise counsel or they're going to bounce some things off of you. They're going to ask you some good penetrating questions to see whether or not this is what you want to do and you're simply stamping it with God's approval or whether or not this is actually truly what God desires for you. And friends, we need that. So when we inquire of the Lord, it's a little different than what David is doing, but we have the tools before us. We have the resources available to us so that we can be the kind of people that are facing significant situations and are going to the Lord inquiring. So not only did David inquire, he also obeyed when he was given the answer. And the question, of course, is this. Can this be said of you? Can this be said of us? Do you take purposeful time to come before God to seek to know his will about some situation in your life that will have lasting impact? Do you even want to listen to what he has to say? Are you willing, once God has spoken, then to do what he says you need to do? And then do it completely and then with joy. There's a whole process going on here, right? Remember, this was Saul's problem. Saul inquired of the Lord he got direction from God. He got clear instructions in particular about destroying the Amalekites. But he would not follow through with what God had told him he needed to do. And that was an act of rebellion. That actually cost him his kingship. It was a significant failure on Saul's part. That was his problem. But here, not only does David want guidance from God, he wants specific guidance, not just go up to Judah, but go up to Hebron. We might say David asked, he listened, he obeyed. It reminds me of that song that many of us learned in Sunday school years and years ago, probably, as we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. But we learn what God says, we learn what God wants by spending time in his word, by praying together with him, but we also need to obey what he says. We need to trust it. And friends, there are some things then we learn about how we live our lives then for God's glory with these big changes from the example of David that I think are helpful. But notice now, specifically back in the text, he goes to Hebron. This is where God wants him to go, this, this town or the city of Hebron. You say, well, what's so significant about Hebron? Well, there's some things that we need to know about Hebron. Hebron was the city of Abraham. It was the city of Abraham. The book of Genesis tells us that Abraham settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are 
at Hebron. And he also built an altar there to the Lord. That's Genesis 13, 18. It's also where Abraham was visited by three men who told him in his old age that his wife, in her old age, was going to have a son. It's also the place of Sarah, his wife's death and burial. And it would also be the burial place of Abraham himself, as well as his son Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah. You might say that Hebron, at this point in time, was Israel's, or was where Israel's life began. This is the place where God's promises to Israel were given. This is a significant place. You know, we talk about in the United States, you know, what's our capital? Well, it's Washington, D.C. It's a significant place. This is where our leadership has been established. This is where the White House is. This is where all the business affairs take place. There's something significant about that city. Well, in the history of, of, of Israel at this point in time, Hebron had that kind of essence to it. It was Israel's city. It was Judah's city at that point in time. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says this, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the promise that was given to Israel at Hebron. So David, going up to Hebron, links David to the story of Abraham and the blessings God had promised him. It links David as a significant and rightful descendant of Abraham. And so for us living in 2016, it also helps us make sense of Matthew 1.1. Turn now to Matthew 1.1. I just want you to see this. This is no surprise that Matthew begins with this statement. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the New Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of whom? Abraham. See, David is connected to Abraham by lineage, but David is also connected to Abraham here by virtue of him going and being at Hebron. He's embracing this position. He's embracing this responsibility. He's embracing this ongoing promise that God had given to his people. And so add to the fact then that David was bringing his two wives with him. Now, why are they mentioned here like they are? And why is the place of their, their heritage or where they're from mentioned? It's because both of those locations are right next to Hebron. See, what's happening here is David and his people are coming home to Hebron. This is a significant thing. This isn't just like, well, just go over here and just go over here. No, he's coming home. And when he comes home, something significant takes place. He comes home to Hebron with this entourage of between 600 and 1,000 men and women. It's no small matter at all. In fact, it's a major event, and it's an event that I'm sure involved great celebration. 
But we only have one part of that celebration recorded for us, and that's in verse 4. It says, And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Friends, this was the inauguration of David as king. But who are these men of Judah? I mean, where do they come from? We haven't heard too much of them. They are most likely the friends that David sent gifts to after he had defeated the Amalekites, bringing their wives and children and the spoil back to Ziklag. David sent the spoils that he got from fighting the Amalekites, and he distributed them to his friends, who are also called the elders of Judah or the rulers of various cities. That's in 1 Samuel chapter 30 and verse 26. When David came to Ziklag, it says, he sent part of the spoils to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. And some of the locations and cities are mentioned. There's no surprise that what David is doing here. he's, he's, He's already thought this through, and he's already built some relationship with these guys. So together, these men of Judah anoint David as king over the house of Judah. Their anointing was a reaffirmation of the anointing that David had already received in Bethlehem with his family when Samuel went there to anoint him. And all this time, David has been waiting. Remember, during that time of waiting, he is not willing to touch the Lord's anointed. He served alongside of Saul. He would not do anything to tear down Saul from his position as king. And the time now has come for David to be set up as king. I'll put this little qualifier, sort of. If you've read on a little bit, you know why. Then it talks here about the house of Judah. David was not the anointed king over Israel, but he was the anointed king over Judah. This is really significant. It would take place in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. That's when David ultimately will be king of Israel. That will be all the tribes. Right now, David is simply king over Judah, one tribe, one single lowly tribe. The kingdom was beginning at Hebron, And it's a reminder of the words of Jesus when he says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of what? Mustard seed. See, God has his plan, and it begins in a small way. In fact, let me just take you back to what's before 1 Samuel. Remember what we read at the end of the book of Judges? In that day there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. It just seemed like, What in the world is God going to do? And out of nowhere, he raises up this little boy by the name of Samuel. And here now we have David being raised up, insignificant David, out taking care of the, the sheep, and he's raised up, and he's anointed, and God blesses him, and God uses him, and he grows, and he matures, and he gets a following then. And now we find out, here's David, he's anointed king over little Judah, in this little place down in the south. It was a rather insignificant place. 
It was obscure. And so the kingdom of God is tucked away in this obscure city of Hebron. But it will grow. That's the promise. That's what we know. And if you've read on, you will see that that's true. And friends, this should remind us of something. This should remind us that God is in the business of taking and using small and rather insignificant things and according to his will, growing them into big things to be used for the building of his kingdom. As I thought about this, and by no means do I want to embarrass anyone who is here, but I was thinking about um, the reality of this principle being at work and some of you are, are, are aware of and have been involved in the, the basketball league that takes place here in the Castro Valley area that's put on by a number of churches. That now there's probably about between 400 and 600 kids that go and are on teams. And each week they have, they have coaches. And the idea is that the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ would be shared with those kids who are playing basketball and all that kind of stuff. But do you realize that that ministry started in a gym with one man and a few kids? And that man is in this auditorium today. I'm not going to point that person out. I'll leave you wondering about it. But one man's desire to reach kids has grown into a full-blown ministry in Castro Valley that is seeking to reach kids. See, God takes these things that are small and seemingly insignificant insignificant and, and in his timing and in his own way can, can build them up in ways that we would not even imagine. So don't despise the day of small things. Don't, don't think that just what you're doing is such a small little part of the kingdom and it has no bearing. There are all sorts of small things that have to take place in order for the church to function. There are people right now serving in the nursery, taking care of little kids. There are those that are teaching the, the older kids and, and probably wondering, how am I going to get through this lesson? And they're like, you know, am I making any impact? Is there anything that's really going to happen from this? But listen, we don't know what God is going to do with those little kids. We don't know. As, we, as I held Asher in my arms this morning, I don't know what God is going to do with him. But there may be some kids in our church that are going to be significant future leaders of the church in years to come. And your little influence, your words, your comment, your encouragement, your investment, your, your ministry that, that seems like no one's even watching or noticing is what God uses to, to build and to strengthen that child. So don't despise the day of small things. Be faithful with, it, God, with what God has given you. Ask for wisdom and discernment. Listen to his counsel. Be obedient when he speaks. And it's also worth us remembering that not all of our kingdom efforts will result in kingdom success. You've probably been there. Well, let's have a Bible study on such and such, right? And you create a Bible study. Oh, this is great. We're going to study this particular thing in the Bible, and people are going to come, and they're going to be excited, and there's going to be all this great discussion. And, you know, you, you, you host it, and, you know, 10 people signed up, and three people show up. And then the next week, of those three people, two of them are sick. And you have one person, you're sitting there like, okay, we're going through this Bible study, and we're going to have a discussion, just you and me, you know. And part of you is like, ah, oh, this is discouraging. That can happen, and it's okay. And it may have been a 
wonderful Bible study. I mean, excellent teaching, excellent resources, excellent topic, but it just doesn't fly. Maybe you have some evangelistic discussions that you've had the great opportunity to be really clear and, and powerful in explaining the gospel so that this person that is sitting in front of you can, can really grapple with it and really understand it, but it ends not in belief, but unbelief. And you're like, God, I, I did it all right. I said the right things, and I used the right illustrations, and your word was, was clear, and I, I explained it. But it doesn't result in that person coming to belief. You're like, yeah, have I failed? Not at all. See, not all ministry is necessarily always going to be successful, and that's all part of God's kingdom plan. Sometimes there are small things that he just pours into, and wow, how did that happen? And sometimes there are things that we think, hey, this is going to work, and it doesn't. Or sometimes we're, our attitude is good and right, but it's just not, it's not what God chooses at that point in time. Some, some good, sound ministry ideas fall flat, don't they? I mean, it's okay. We tried that. Doesn't seem like it's connecting, and we're gonna we're gonna regroup and we're gonna seek to do something different. That's okay. We must be willing to see the slow movement or even the failure in light of all the Bible says about Christ's return and the triumph of his kingdom. Now, friends, I want you to hear this. We've talked about this before, I am sure, but there there are there are ways in which God is working in this world that you and I will not see. And so we might actually be involved in something that we think is a failure. And yet God is using that in ways that you can't see, working his will in people's lives. And if God could simply allow you to pull back the pages of heaven and his purposes, you would see that maybe that Bible study where you were talking to that person one-on-one for that one person was incredibly significant. And they remembered that, and there was something about that that was powerful and impactful to them. And you thought, man, this was a total failure. And yet that person was helped by that time. It would be great if we could see all the fruit of our labors, wouldn't it? (laughs) But often that is not for us to see. So what do we do? We trust in our sovereign God that he is working his will through what we perceive are successes as well as what we see or feel are failures. Now, we've seen then that the kingdom is initiated. Now we want to look at the kingdom being extended. The kingdom being extended. We know that David is a wise man. But now we see that David is a wise king. And what he does next is a masterful stroke of leadership. We're told there in verse 4, when, when they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead. Now, the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who are they? You may or may not be aware of the story. It's at the end of 1 Samuel. But when Saul died, he was taken by the Philistines, and his body was abused. Um, he was decapitated, and he was taken to a city called Bet-Shan. And he, his body, as well as his sons that died in battle, were, were literally spiked on the walls, put on display. And this is a city that is in the heart of Israel. Okay? The Philistines came in 
They are victorious. What happens to conquering people or yeah, to the conquering armies? They come in and they take over. And they display the king and his sons for all of the people that were living there that your king is dead. And they shame them. The men of Jabesh Gilead had been, it was like the first act that Saul did when he was anointed king. Spirit of God rushed upon him. He heard about the distress of the people in Jabesh Gilead because they were being besieged by Nahash, the Ammonite, who was saying, listen, either I'm going to destroy you or I'm going to pluck all of your right eyes out. Nice, nice prospect, right? Um, along comes Saul with an army, and he, he just he wipes them out. He, he just clears them off. And the men of Jabesh Gilead never forgot what Saul did. And motivated by Saul's um, rescue of them, when he is hanging on that city with his sons, the men of Jabesh Gilead in one night ran 10 miles to where his body was, somehow got by the soldiers that were there, captured, got his body as well as his sons, took them back to Jabesh Gilead and honored him with a burial and a funeral fit for a king. They honored, they respected Saul in death because of what Saul had done for them. So that's the story that kind of is is behind these men at Jabesh Gilead. Now, the reality is that Jabesh Gilead is literally across the Jordan River from where the Philistines had won their battle and people had fled into that territory. So this territory now is under Philistine control. And David now is seeking to appeal to them. This is is like about 70 miles away from where David is. So his messengers have to go through enemy territory to get there, but he hears about their, their valiant behavior. So this is the men of Jabesh Gilead that we need to kind of think through. But then there's this blessing that David, that David gives to the men of Jabesh Gilead. But here, this in the grand scheme of things, the men of Jabesh Gilead are still, you might want to say, enemies of David because of their loyalty to Saul. Okay? So all these people were loyal to Saul. Remember, David was wandering off in the wilderness, and he was actually in Philistine territory. He was considered the outlaw. The men of Jabesh Gilead, because of their love for Saul and their loyalty to Saul, now might be considered in the category of being his enemies, but David wants to reach out to them. He wants to extend a a hand of grace, a, 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 a welcome to them. And so notice what, we, what he does in his appeal. We'll read it, and then we'll just kind of take it apart. And he said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for, the, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them, the emphasis there on the me. So David is extending this appeal to the men of Jabesh Gilead to become part of his new kingdom, to join in allegiance with him. That's ultimately where he's going. But listen again to what he says. First, David recounts and honors and blesses them for the valiant behavior and the valiant activity of going and, 
and taking care of Saul's body, honoring him in death. Then he, he prays for God's blessing on them, that he would show steadfast love and faithfulness to them. These are, are not insignificant words. Steadfast love is kesed, and it refers to an exceptional kindness, like the kindness that Saul did to them by rescuing them, and the kindness that they did to Saul by going and rescuing his body in kind. And the word faithfulness is really referring to the, the trusting in the character of God, and how he, he is relentlessly pursuing his people. So taken together, as there so often are in the Old Testament, they comprehend all that we could desire from and ask for God. So when you, when you say his steadfast love and his faithfulness, you're saying everything that, that God could give me, that's what I'm wanting to happen. Or everything that God could give you, that's what I'm praying will happen to you, that you will receive that. So this is no small statement. He is genuine. He means these things. He is, he is taken up by their act of uh, valiant behavior toward Saul. Third, he says, I will do good to you. The emphasis is on the statement, I, I will do good to you. He's saying that he would be the agent through whom God would be good, kind, and faithful to them. And fourth, he says, take courage. See, their king is dead. But they need boldness because now, even though they're surrounded by the enemies of Israel, the Philistines, he's saying, the men of Judah have raised me up to be king in Judah. And I'm calling on you for your allegiance to be a part of this kingdom that God is beginning in Hebron. Now, we're not told exactly what they did. We, we see them later on in the book of 2 Samuel, but there is this extension that goes out toward them. There's this appeal. There is this desire to welcome them into the kingdom. And so we must recognize and we must see here that, that this is actually a very significant thing that David is doing. I mean, really, why, why does he feel he has the the um, right to extend this kind of offer and blessing and kindness to these men of Jabesh Gilead, it's because he is the one who has been anointed king over Judah. And friends, we must see that the allegiance that God, uh, or the allegiance that is necessary for those to join themselves with the kingdom that God is now establishing with David is a risky business. For, for these people up in Jabesh Gilead to say we are going to align ourselves with David is to put themselves in a little bit of peril. And it should remind us also that to move from enemy status to friend status comes with a cost. But friends, that is what Jesus said when he ministered on this earth. Listen to what he told the multitudes who were following him and wanting to be his disciples. And here's how Jesus puts it. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus is saying, listen, come and be my disciples, but there is a cost. And if you want to be a disciple, this is what the cost is. Deny yourself Take up your cross 
and follow me. Jesus also put the cost in, into perspective in Luke chapter 14, 26 and following. Here's what he says. If anyone comes to me, again, wanting to be a disciple, and this is what he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, what is Jesus talking about there? Is he talking about standing in front of your parents and saying, I hate you? I mean, is this like the Grinch in the Bible here? No. What he's talking about here is this, that your loyalty to him is far greater than your loyalty to your family, to your parents, to your spouse, to your children. You're his first. And the extent to which you are loyal to him looks at times as others are looking on as if you don't care about your family. And it's not that you don't care about your family. It's just that God comes first in your life. You can read on in that passage. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Then he talks about a king going into battle who's thinking about what kind of armies do I need to take into battle? You've got to count the cost before you actually enter into that battle. And his point is this. As the offer is extended, as the gospel goes out, as the, the welcome into my kingdom is, is, is made, the person who is being offered that has to ask themselves the question, am I willing to count the cost? Am I willing to take the risk? Am I willing to say that Jesus Christ will be my Lord? He will be my King. And Jesus challenges us to trust him. Matthew 11 and verse 29 says this. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. It's an incredible picture, isn't it? This, this yoke you're putting on you is a yoke where you are, in a sense, controlled now. And so there's this cost. You're saying, I am bound by the yoke of Christ. I am bound by his will, his wishes, his desires. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle, lowly in heart, and you will find a rest for your souls. There's a yoke, which means absolute submission to Christ. There is this character of Christ that is also laid out here. He's gentle. He's lowly. This is the comfort, friends. This is the promise that draws us in to humble ourselves before Christ. And so there's a question here that's begging to be asked, and that's this. How do we speak to others about Christ and the gospel? How do we draw people in? How do we extend the gospel to others? And based on what we just looked at in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, there are really two parts that we can consider here. First of all, there's the character of Christ. You often hear that, you know, Jesus is loving. Is that true? Yeah. Jesus cares for you. Is that true? Jesus is gentle, is that true? Is he humble? Yes. 
I mean, he is one who is forgiving. All those things are important. All those things are true. But if that's all you talk about as it relates to the gospel, if you say that Jesus went to the cross and died for your sins and it's simply couched in love and that's it, that's only part of the story. Because there's also not only the character of Christ, there's also the cost. Because you, ultimately, in embracing him as your Lord and Savior, are being exclusive. You're saying, I am willing to to submit to his absolute authority and rule in my life. See, conversion isn't simply adding Jesus to your life. It's not like saying, I'm going on a journey, I'm going to go to Italy, and on, on, on my you know, my luggage, I've got this sticker that says I've been to Italy. Then I go to England as a sticker. Of course, it's a bigger sticker if it's England, right? You go to then Germany, and you have another one. Then you go to France or whatever. You get all these stickers. It's like, oh, I want Jesus, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick that sticker on there, too. Look at all these stickers I got. And you've heard the story about the guy who was in the hospital, and he asked for a pastor to come up, and he's close to death. And, um, you know, the pastor comes, and he prays with him, and Asks him about you know, whether he knows Christ as his Lord and Savior, and the guy says, yes, I do. And, and as the pastor prays for him, and he, he, he's on his way out, the, the man says, oh, all right, I've got it covered. And the pastor turned around and said, well, what do you mean? He says, well, I just had the Mormon guy in, and I just had the... And so he had all the different religions in, and he says, I'm covered. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. You don't just put stickers onto your life, so to speak. What God is calling for in conversion is a complete overhaul, a complete new life that is completely submissive and devoted to him as master and Lord. Friends, he is Lord. There is no other. So when David is appealing to the men of Jabesh Gilead, he's appealing for them to come and be a part of God's kingdom that is beginning here, that is birthed in Hebron. And this, this actually magnifies as we see what happens next in the story. Now, you might see in your, in your text that there's probably a heading that happens next, or there's a line here. It, it, it seems that this is actually taking place, this next little section is taking place about five years after this account, or at least there was five years from the point of Saul's death, or his, sorry, David's anointing, to what happens here, that is a point of discussion. But the significant thing is what happens next. We've looked at the fact that the kingdom is initiated, then it's extended, but now the kingdom is disputed. Or you might even use the word opposed. Just when you thought that David now can rest as king, after all this running around, right? After being chased by Saul for all this time, He now, as king, can rest and his kingdom would be ushered in, unmolested. As soon as you start to think about that, you realize that opposition arises and disputes against his kingship are made. Verse 8, And Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead. And the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and what? All Israel. Now let's just, let's just consider what I'm calling family matters. There's Abner, and there's this, this guy, Ishbosheth. 
Abner has already been in the story. He's the faithful cousin of Saul who commands Saul's army. So he's been serving alongside Saul in a loyal fashion. He had seen David defeat Goliath, the champion of the Philistines. That's the great story that we talk about that the Bible records about David going out with his slingshot and these five, these five stones and defeating this giant. Abner was there. Abner escorted David back from that battle to into Saul's presence. Abner and David knew each other well um, because they sat at the table together. So there's this, this, there's this picture of David sitting with, with Saul and Abner and Jonathan in the palace. And so there is certainly this kind of interaction going on. And certainly David was one of, of Saul's key men who went out into battle. And so there was this certainly camaraderie, I would think, with David and Abner um, that took place. But David, sorry, but, but Abner's loyalty was still to Saul. It was still to the house of Saul. And then we have Ishbosheth. Apparently, Ishbosheth, who is the son of Saul, did not die in the fighting that took place there on Mount Gilboa. And so Abner takes him and sets him up as king over Israel in Mahanam. Now, there's a little bit of a need right now, if you just want to pause, for a geography lesson, okay? And, and this is significant in this passage, and I'll, I'll show you why. Number one, um, I want you to see this map up here. Um, look at the map up there. I know it's maybe not the easiest thing to see, but I, you see the, the area that, at the bottom that's red? That's Judah. That's the territory that David now is being anointed king over. You think, well, all of Israel goes all the way up to the top where it says the Arameans up there. Okay, that's the Sea of Galilee up there, right? Um, and where is Jabesh Gilead? I don't think there's a, a pointer on here. Um, where is Jabesh Gilead? Jabesh Gilead, you see where uh, Mahanaim is there um, and Shechem? It's north of that, okay? So it'll be on the, on the east side of the of the Jordan River and north of Mahanaim, about 15 miles. Okay? Now, in the story that happens at the end of 1 Samuel, the Philistines come from the west and they invade to the east and they actually take over the northern part of Israel. So I want you to get the lay of the land. The Philistines now control the northern part of Israel and even some portions that are east of the Jordan. All right? Now, let's, let's just um, list now where the different people are that are part of this story. All right, The Philistines, they're central, they're north. Judah is there in the south. Jabesh Gilead is in the northeast of Jordan. And Israel, under Abner and Ishbosheth, are south and east. So in that area, it's called Gilead right there. However, if you look at what it says, it says, And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites in Jezreel, and Jezreel is the north and the central, as well as Ephraim. The point here is this. All right? The significance is that Abner's Israel territory did not compose of what we would normally think of as Israel. That's where the Philistines were. The Philistines were in control of that northern section. Abner's Israel was a makeshift territory with Mahanaim as capital, and Ishbosheth isn't the real muscle in the story. He's simply Abner's puppet king raised to oppose David. If he is 
anointed king of Israel, then why is he not in control of all these places? He's simply over in the east. The Philistines are in control of those territories. So you have this kind of flawed it's kind of like saying, you know, that you know, our president is president of the United States, Canada, and Mexico. You can say it all you want, but you're not. All right? You're president of a country. Ishbosheth is not the king of that territory. He doesn't control that territory. Now, with all of that, we recognize that Abner's actions now were outright rebellion against David. What he is doing here is opposing the Lord's anointed. And when you oppose the Lord's anointed, who are you actually opposing? You're not just opposing man, you're opposing God himself. You say, well, wait a second, well, why is Abner doing that? I'll tell you, Abner is doing this not because he's ignorant. Abner is doing this and he knows what God desires and what his will is. If you can follow, if you want to read along in your Bibles, but 1 Samuel 24, 20, this is where Saul is speaking to David and Abner is there within earshot. This is what Saul is saying to David, and now, behold, I know that you, David, shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. And in 1 Samuel, there were a number of people that just affirmed to David what God was doing, and Saul was one of them, and Abner would have heard that. And later in the story in 2 Samuel 3, 9, Abner now is speaking to those who are opposed to him, and he says this, God do so to Abner, in other words, to me, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him. So in other words, he knows He knows that God has chosen David to be king. In fact, later in that chapter, verse 18, he says, Now then, or it says, Now then, bring bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. So the, the bottom line here is this that Abner's act of rebellion was not out of ignorance. He knew what God had promised to David, but chose to stand in opposition anyway. He is defying God. And friends, this kind of rebellion and opposition to God's kingdom doesn't stop here, does it? It continues on through the pages of the Bible. It continues on into the New Testament. It is something that we see even now as we live. There will be times in Israel's history where they are strong, where they are blessed with prosperity and great health. But opposition will come. Disputes will arise concerning the land and who should rule. And it will continue until Jesus comes in power and glory. Listen to Matthew 13 and verse 40 and following. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man, that's Jesus, will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. All those who oppose him and his kingdom. So Abner here aligns himself with all those in history who have opposed God. Psalm 
2 and verses 2 and 3 says this, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He joins those who opposed Jesus while he ministered in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Luke records for us in the book of Acts what the believers said after Peter and John were released. For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So there were groups of people that were opposed even to Jesus, and Abner is just one in the long line of those who opposed God and his unfolding kingdom. And then he joins those in the parable of the ten minas, where the citizens said of their nobleman, nobleman who went away and would return, this is what it says, Luke 19, 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. You see, friends, there is, there's always going to be an opposition to God in every age, in every time, until the Lord returns in power and glory. So it shouldn't surprise us. And it shouldn't surprise us that Abner, knowing God's will, is opposed to God's will. It shouldn't surprise us that there are leaders in our country who may have read God's word, who scoff at God's word, and are willing to oppose God's word regardless of what it says. Those people will always be present. They will always be around. And if we are part of God's church on the earth, this kingdom conflict will continue in one form or another until the Lord returns. And all you have to do is turn on your TV or listen to the radio to hear today's Abners discourage and depress the followers of Christ. Just people who just want to mock and scorn the things of God, who, who ridicule God and ridicule those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So we might feel a little like the tribe of Judah, small and rather insignificant. And I think that we might feel a little like the, the tide of Christianity in, in our American culture is beginning to recede. And there's a little panic in us because we thought of ourselves as a Christian nation we comforted ourselves with saying, oh, we have freedom here in our country. But some of that seems to be moving away from us. And what we see rising up is Islam and all its violence and hatred. Or atheism that is strong and powerful among our country's elite. Or selfish individualism that is rampant and driving a growing immorality in our culture. But they're all opposed to Christ and the gospel. They're all shaking their fist at God and what he says and what he promises. But in the face of opposition, friends, we have the certainty of knowing the end of the story. This king of Judah, 
is God's chosen and anointed king on earth at that point in time, but he is just foreshadowing the king of kings who will rule in power and glory. And in heaven, as the elders are gathered, one of the elders sitting around the throne speaks, Revelation 5 and verse 5, and here's what he says, Weep no more! Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered! And still as we look ahead at what we know to be the end of the story, our text brings us back down to earth again. Look at verse 10. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. About the same amount of time that Saul reigned. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. That's why we're looking at this text and saying, aha, okay, so David was ruling, and then a little later in the story, this is when Abner rises up with Ishbosheth. This is the narrator's way of not giving us, or of not only giving us the big picture of what is yet to come in the story, but also of reminding us that in the next few chapters, David has much work still to do to be king over Israel and Judah. There'll be two years with Ishbosheth sitting and opposing David as king. And there'll be two turbulent years, but there'll only be two years. But there's still work that needs to be done. And friends, this is a reminder for us that the, the Lord has not returned yet. And even though we know the end of the story, there's still work that needs to be done. There's still some battles that need to be fought. There's still some living that needs to take place for the glory of God. So we don't just sit back and wait. We're called to be about the Lord's work until he comes. We're to be living in light of his return, busy doing what he's called us to do on one side, but on another side, looking and longing and hoping for his return. The narrator is also reminding us that there are some who will follow David as king in spite of those who may oppose him. Judah is surrounding David. Judah is raising him up as king. Judah followed David as king. And so the men of Judah, were told in verse 4, anoint David as king over Judah. The men of Jabesh Gilead are encouraged to recognize David as king over Judah. The house of Judah, unlike Abner and Ishbosheth, followed David as king. And so the obvious question for all of us this morning is this. Where do you see yourself in this text when it comes to seeing Jesus as your king. If you're like the house of Judah, you're going to recognize Jesus as your king. You're going to celebrate. You're going to bow down before him as your king, as your ruler. Or if you're like the men of Jabesh Gilead, you're being graciously offered to be part of his kingdom, to be recognizing Christ as king. And you may be wrestling with that. You may be struggling with the the cost that that all involves. But that extending is going out to you, and the Holy Spirit is working on you, and and you have to come to a place where you have to say, listen, there's, there's nothing else in this life that is more important than me coming face to face with my creator, and I can do that through Jesus Christ. Or are you like the Abners and Ishbosheths of this world? 
disputing the right of Jesus to even want to be your king. It's quite a challenge, isn't it? So here we are in the Old Testament, and here the gospel, so to speak, is being proclaimed by virtue of the story, by virtue of this extension, by virtue of those who have the privilege of knowing him or who could have the privilege of knowing them if they would simply take the risk and count the cost and follow him and commit their allegiance to him. Friends, there is an exclusivity that comes with recognizing Jesus as your king. First of all, it recognizes that Jesus is the only way to get to God. There aren't many ways to get to God. The Bible's very, very clear. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can't say, well, there's all sorts of planes that fly to different places. Yeah. When it comes to the kingdom, there's only one way to enter into that kingdom, and it's through Jesus Christ. He's exclusive. It also embraces that it is only through the gospel, what Jesus has done on the cross and dying in our place, that we can be forgiven, reconciled to him, and certain of eternal life. Friends, it's not the good works that you do. It's the good work that Jesus has done that is the means by which we're able to move from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It also acknowledges that those who's, who choose to reject Christ are also those who ultimately oppose Christ. To say no to Christ is to oppose Christ. It's not kind of like this middle ground. It's like, well, you know, I like him. He's okay. You know, I think he's a good man. He's been a good teacher. He's a great prophet. He was a good example for us. I mean, he died to show people how much he was committed to loving them. No. You either aligned with him or you're opposed to him. This exclusivity also humbly submits to one Lord and master, Jesus Christ, who loves his subjects and only wants their best. And that's why he calls us heirs. That's why he promises us a place in heaven, part of his family. That's why he welcomes us to worship him and to adore him. Let me just quickly finish with three things just flow out of this text, things that I, that I, I believe that are helpful for us to, to just kind of think through as we're coming to the end of this, this short text. Number one, God is committed to keeping his promises. He was keeping his promises to Abraham. And in this story, we see he's keeping his promises to David. And God continues to keep his promises to Israel because he brings the Messiah. And ultimately, he keeps his promises to his church. Secondly, God is committed to unfolding his plan. He is going to do it in his way, according to his timing. You wouldn't typically think that God would kind of work out of obscurity. You'd think that he would work in might and power in ways that we could imagine, but no, he chooses to work in his own way, through his own path. And God is also committed to nurturing his people. And he does that through 
the ministry of the word. He does that through prayer. He does that by means of the Holy Spirit as you meditate on the word of God and as you pray to God. He is working his will. He's nurturing his people for his glory. All of this really is brought together in the verse of scripture that J.D. started our whole services with. 1 Timothy 17 says this, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we are in awe of how you have worked in history. Lord, what an incredible way in which you are raising up David in this particular establishing of your kingdom. Lord, it's the, the ways in which man has interacted and yet you have been at work. And Lord, we trust that even in our seemingly small way that you are at work to bring about your purposes. And Lord, help us to see your hand, your providential hand, your sovereign hand at work. And help us to be faithful with the things you've called us to. But Lord, we are in awe of your majesty. We're in awe of your greatness. You are the king of the ages. And Lord, we want to praise you today. Thank you for all you do for us. And Lord, if there's someone here today who is struggling, who has been extended the gospel, we just pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work in their hearts and that you would draw them to yourself. Lord, would you receive all the praise and all the the glory and all the honor that you are due. In your precious name, amen.